be talking about eternity tonight as we are wrapping up this series that I've been talking about, the end with a question mark, because we've been talking about things that lead up to the end of this age, but now I'm going to make a transition. Uh, I think it was last week I talked about hell. This week, was it last week? I think it was. This week and for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be talking about heaven. Are you aware of the fact that in seminary, most, well, most seminaries do not talk much about hell? I, I know in my seminary that I went to, and I think I went to a very, you know, Regent University, in my opinion, is a great university. Um, but even then, and as much as I admired Dr. J. Rodman Williams, the truth is, though, that we touched on heaven like maybe one session. Randy Alcorn has a book entitled Heaven. It's over 500 pages. I'm going to encourage you, if you have a chance to read his book, it's pretty much based more on questions than like strict chapters or sections, but I'm going to encourage you to look through that. Very helpful book. I read that book many, many years ago. There is just not a lot of material out there about heaven except people's experiences saying that they had gone to heaven. And can I just say, I don't know whether those are true experiences or not. I am not going to say one way or the other. I do not base my understanding or my knowledge about heaven on those experiences, but I base it on the word of God. And there's a reason for this. And as we go through this series... Let's just understand the reason why this series is called The End Question Mark is because really it's not the end, is it? The end of this age is really the beginning of a whole new eternity for us in a new heaven and a new earth. And the Bible says that we were created for that. But here now is a testing ground. Here in this age is an opportunity for us of our own volition, of our own will, to pursue Jesus Christ, who stepped out of heaven into our world to rescue us, to redeem us, to reconcile us, to restore us. And that is what the, the topic of tonight is about. I've entitled it Heaven, A Complete Restoration. Before I do that, before we get into the word, I want us to just pray, okay? So, Father, we do that, and we ask that your spirit would enlighten our minds, that you would speak to our hearts that you would show us new things, you would help us dig into your word. But Father, as we leave this, that we are going to walk in what we have learned, that Father, you would have touched us, that we would have a God event tonight as we search your scriptures and let them examine us and encourage us or correct us. But Spirit of God, have your way in every single one of our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. There's a story that's been told. I don't know if it's true or not, but I'll share it. I'll pass it along with you. There was a pastor and a politician who stood before the pearly gates, okay? And Peter opens and, and welcomes them, and he gives them each a hug, but then he stands next to the politician and walks him in and in, in, introduces them to everybody there and on and on. And the, the pastor's just kind of following him, and he talks on and on and on and then finally as, as they're kind of parting and drifting around and Peter, excuse me, the, the, the pastor pulls Peter aside and says Peter, I, I mean I, I want you to know I so appreciate you introducing this politician to everybody but can I just be honest with you, I've given my entire life to your king, to the kingdom of Christ and I've sacrificed so much, been on the mission field and served you and God's purposes in my generation. And I just don't understand why you made such a, uh, such a fuss about this politician. And Peter says, Pastor, I am so sorry. But you just got to realize that there's been a lot of pastors coming through these pearly gates, but this is the first politician. Okay, maybe that's not necessarily true. The original story was a lawyer. <laughs> Regardless. I have in the our homeschool room, the homeschool room is what's originally on the floor pan called the bonus room. It's a large room. It's like book, wall-to-wall -wall books because we homeschooled and we love books, especially my wife. But she has a desk in there, and it's an old teacher's desk. Do you remember like 
four decades or more ago, anybody lived more than four decades. Anyway, I was in elementary school five decades ago, and I can remember the teacher's desk and how it looked. It was an oak desk. It's like they were all the same. It's like one company built teacher's desks for all the teachers in America. They were all the same. And one day, years and years later, of course, after I graduated, there was a rummage sale, and I went in, and there was a teacher's desk, an old, beat-up teacher's desk. And I just thought, my wife, it was like 30 bucks and for a solid oak desk. And I was like, my wife would love this. So I purchased it. I mean, that thing was honking heavy. But we, we put it in my, we took it, put it in my garage, and I refinished it. And, man, I had to sand that down so much. It took weeks to remove all of the stain, all of the varnish, take it down to just bare wood, stain it, and varnish it. And we still have that oak desk in there. There's just something about restoring something that's old. Isn't that true? I, I, I love this old house. Not that I've watched it a lot, but back in the day when I had the time to do it, I love watching the restoration of this. And what they would do, right, they would take you through the house, and they would have the cameraman going from room to room, and you would just see it's so beat up. If you go online, and I did that, but they had, it's just that the videos were way too long for me to show here tonight, like an hour long, walking you through their old house. And then they do the restoration, and it's like, you got to be kidding. There's no way in the world that this is the same house. And then they take you outside, and sure enough, I mean, it looks amazing. It still looks very different, but it's completely different, completely renovated, completely restored. There's an old house down by the Maitland City Fountain, right off 1792. And that is a very special house for me because it was an old beat-up house and they ripped off all the planks and they restored it in a matter of the, the exterior in a matter of a few weeks. And I would just go and I would visit, I would sit down and it was there that, that God began to speak to me about some of the rotten planks in my life, just attitudes really about not trusting God. I was struggling with the business and just wondering, God, I, I thought you brought us down here. Did you, did you bring us down here just so that the business would fall apart. I came to start the business and start a church. And God, what are you doing? I felt like the Israelites. Moses, did you lead us out into the wilderness to die? Really? And it was right there that God began to speak to me. And he said, Mike, I need you to look at that old house. Do you see what I'm doing? And I have, they have to rip off these old planks in order to put the new one and restore it. And that's what I'm meeting here. I'm, there are certain attitudes like pity parties, those types of things. When things aren't going your well, your way, and I just began to realize, God, you're needing to do this with in my life. And God began that restoration in some of these attitudes in my own life. But all of us are in this process, if you're a believer in Jesus, of being restored. And I'm going to come back to that at the end. But as we look at the word of God, we have a hope of a complete restoration. Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 3, and I'm going to be touching on a number of verses, but we're going to settle in Revelation 21. But follow me, you don't have to turn there, but listen to this. He says, he must, re he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through the holy prophets. That word in the Greek, restore, is regularly used in Greek literature to talk about the heavenly movement of, of celestial bodies and how they, would how they would move through the sky and within a certain amount of time come back to its original position. They would use this Greek word to say that the pos its position was restored. That is, restored to its original. Now this is important because when we are in heaven, not the intermediate state where our bodies are in the grave and our spirits are with the Lord. I look forward to that. That's where Lou Newby is right now. There's going to be a time in which Lou and all of us are going to be in, this, in our glorified bodies in the new kingdom, in the new heaven and new earth. And everything, that's what this passage is referring to, everything will be restored. And man, this is exciting. This is really the theme throughout 
the scriptures from Genesis and God's original creation to the very end of, of Revelation. This is this process of how God's original creation was crumbled and all but completely destroyed through sin. And the ramifications of sin and how it affected and infected everyone, including everything in the entire universe. How does that song go? Uh, as far as the curse is found throughout the universe, the reverberations of sin and its consequences, the curse has touched everything that God created. And Satan relishes this. He thought that he had finally secured his place when he had Jesus, the son of God, crucified. Wow, did he make a mistake, right? God triumphed through the cross and by the resurrection. And we're, that's, we're going we're to end up at the cross and the resurrection at the end here. But this is this concept of restoration that we are looking forward to. Matthew brings it up again in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. He says this. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I, I, I realize that there are some that would say this is the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. Uh, they would be premillennialists. I happen to not embrace that particular millennial view. This, in, 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 in part because this right here, they're not judging the 12 tribes of Israel then, but they are tw judging the 12 tribes of Israel in the new heaven and the earth, new earth. Why would I suggest this? And it's because of this word right here. The re NIV translates it, the renewal of all things. The Greek word is polygenesia, which means Again, Pauline, Genesia, or we get a word Genesis. Which you know, do you remember what Genesis means? It means beginning. That is the beginnings again, or the re-beginnings. The re-beginnings of all things. When will that take place? It's not going to happen in this age. It's going to happen in the next age. That is when heaven comes to earth. The new heaven and the new earth. This is when he's going to restore all things. He's going to renew all things. It's going to go back to its original creation before sin came into the world. That creation, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, that creation, it's going to be completely restored. That is this idea of restore in Acts 3 and this word, phalangenesia, the re-beginning, the re-genesis, if you will. That's what we're going to enjoy. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to just kind of lay this out. What does it mean, a re-beginning? And in part, we're going to need to go back to the original creation. In part, we're going to have to look at this idea of the image of God in us and that being restored. What are the implications? And church, if you've not thought through this, the implications for heaven are vast. It's powerful. It's amazing. Our problem and I remember Isaac Asimov. Do you remember Isaac Asimov? Tremendous uh, science fiction writer. I, I, I loved his works. The problem, though, is that Isaac Asimov was an atheist. Isaac Asimov was very critical of heaven. He said, you know, if I had a choice between heaven and hell, heaven seems so boring, I think I'd choose hell. Unfortunately, he is suffering in Hades, but... At the end of the age, he will be cast into hell because he absolutely refused to, be a, to become a follower of Jesus. And my heart breaks because, guys, in our generation, so many, that they're turned away from following Jesus, at least in part. It's, it's, if fully, it's because of the wickedness of the heart. But in part, it's because we have done a really poor job of talking about heaven. I mean, when I even mention heaven, what's immediately coming to your mind? Maybe it's a painting from the, from the Middle Ages. Those are very popular in, in which everybody, all the saints are sitting on clouds. They're naked. They're reaching out. They're maybe touching God's finger. Or they are, they're interacting with one another on clouds. And I'm just thinking, church, there could be nothing further from the truth 
I would go so far as to say that painting was demonically inspired. I'm not going to say that because who wants to spend eternity on a cloud? Make heaven so unattractive, slander heaven even, describe it as something it's absolutely not so as to spoil the hearts and the minds of all men who would say, just like Isaac Asimov, I think I'd rather spend eternity in hell. Wow. Unfortunately, most people don't have a very good opinion, even some Christians, about heaven. I hope as we go through this series, your mind is going to be changed about that. Heaven is going to be the most amazing place, and yes, Scripture speaks enough about it to whet our appetites. That's about it. But I tell you what, it is something I look forward to. And when I, and I'd known the Lord for decades, and I finally just sat down, and, and Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, helped me. But I tell you what, when I searched through the Scriptures, I realized, wow, there is so much. It is exciting. This idea of the restoration of all things and what that would mean. So church, we're, we're going to get a little taste tonight about what that means. But I want you to now turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation. Revelation 21. In this new heaven and new earth, there will be no natural evil and no moral evil. Natural evil would be things like disease sickness, harmful bacteria and viruses. If you weren't aware, there's more helpful bacteria and viruses than there are harmful. Somewhere in God's creation, bacteria and viruses were impacted by the curse. Parasites were at one time in symbiotic relationship with their host before they became parasites and were, de and, and were detrimental. But God's original creation was broken. And I need us to realize when we first begin this passage, a new heaven and a new earth, that number one, heaven is in the singular, but that does not mean the throne room of God. Heaven in the singular, many times in Revelation, does mean the throne room of God, where the four living creatures and the angels and the 24 elders are bowing down and worshiping him. Yes, but it is also used in the singular to talk about the universe. If you were to look at um, many scriptures, and especially like in 2 Peter chapter 3, which is the only other passage that refers specifically to a new heaven and new earth, it's in the plural. So I'm just going to suggest this is not God's throne room that he's talking about. This is the universe, throughout the universe, this new heaven or new heavens and a new earth. I'm going to read this chapter. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away, a, uh, excuse me, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is actually based from Isaiah 65, talking about, which is the only passage, other passage, only passage in the Old Testament that refers to this new heaven and new earth, Isaiah 65. We'll look at that another time. He goes on and he says, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new then he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true he said to me it is done i am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end to him who is thirsty i will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life he who overcomes remember the first three chapters seven letters to the to those churches, they all concluded with, to him who overcomes. And here it is again. He who overcomes will inherit all of this. All of this that we're going to talk about. And there's so much more that he does not, well, I'll get into that another time. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexual immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur, this is the second 
death. The first death being physical death. One of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like, like, that, like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city, had laid, the city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia. We'll get into that in just a, a minute. In length and in width and in height. So it's a cube. He measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The, the wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the, 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 fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite. The eighth barrel, the, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, and the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. The glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Guys, this is so rich when we get into it. Not, we're not going to get into this part today. We'll get into it another day. But mm, powerful. On no day... Will its gates ever be shut? And we're going to need to understand what that in itself means. For there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nations. Not just the nations in our day. Throughout history. All people groups bringing their splendor. Wow, what is a, an ethnos? What is their splendor? What would that mean? We're going to need to talk about this. They'll bring it into the new Jerusalem. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, they will be the ones to inherit it all. Let's just take a look at this, if we will, if you would. A new heaven, or heavens, a new earth. 2 Peter 3 says that everything is going to be burned down to its foundation. That's interesting because it, Peter's not telling us that it's going to just completely vaporize and God's going to start from scratch. See, it doesn't say that. The, the image that he gives is this earth and he's having to scrape it all, all the surface off, so to speak, down to its foundation, down to the, the bare minimum, and he's going to start all over with that. And, and I, I've asked, why does he do it? Why doesn't he just destroy everything? And I'm going to suppose, church, that it's because Satan led Adam and Eve into sin. That is what broke this world. The, the, the effects of the curse, church, are far beyond our understanding. Everything in our world, not just man, mankind, was touched by it. Everything was ruined, so to speak. The Bible tells me 
that God is going to restore that. And I've, I've just got to wonder, and it, it's as if he is saying to Satan, you know, you think you destroyed my creation, including mankind? But see, church, God is not just the creator. He is the re-creator. He takes what the enemy has broken. He doesn't just throw it away and start over. He didn't do that with me, thank the Lord. He took Mike Curtis, who thought he was righteous because he grew up in a church. I was lost as much as the guy next door to me. His name was Greg. Greg was a pretty cool guy. But anyway, Greg was not saved. But guess what? I wasn't either. Not until I was 14 years of age. And God didn't just throw Mike Curtis out the window. At the end of the age, he's not going to just throw me out the window and say, I'm going to have to start all over. He's going to take me what he had created that the enemy brought ruin to, and he is going to recreate. He's going to restore. He's not going to obliterate the universe. He's going to break it down. Everything that the curse ruined will vaporize. The elements will melt with heat, Peter says, down to the foundation. As if that's where God's, remember the earth was founded Whatever that exactly means, he's going to take it down to the foundation and he's going to recreate. That's what he's going to do here. Recreate. It's as if he's saying, you know what, Satan? You absolutely did not win. The best church, listen to this. And I want, I want you to think of the implications of this. The best that Satan can do in your life is play into the hands of God. That's the best he can do. And if you're seeking after God, now, granted, if you're just following the enemy and he owns you, you're going to be destroyed. You will die in your sins and you will be lost forever. But those who follow Jesus, the Lamb of God, those who will inherit all of this, the best Satan can do, the very best is play into God's hand if your heart is surrendered to him. Because then everything that Satan does, including the cross... The, the, the worst evil perpetrated against mankind, the crucifixion of the Son of God, God turned around to accomplish the greatest good ever, ever. That is the nature of our God who restores. He takes the ruins and he rebuilds them. He takes the Mike Curtises who thinks they're so righteous and yet in their hearts so corrupt and he restores. That's his nature. That's what he does. It says here that there will be no more sea. Now, I don't know what you think about this. Most people take that literally, that in this new creation, this regenesis, God's just going to do away with the sea. I have a problem with that, to be honest with you, because that just doesn't sound like restoration to me. Actually, the original creation was water covering the entire planet. Then, earth, then land emerged... And there was one sea. So if there's one sea, I would imagine there's one landmass. No, geologists call that Pangaea. There's many reasons for why even secular scientists believe in a Pangaea, one landmass. Biblically, I think there's a lot of support for that in Genesis 1. Regardless, if God created the world, the earth, originally with, with a sea, with a vast ocean, why would he suddenly get rid of it? Unless, and I want you to consider this, the book of Revelation is, com is almost completely about visions. And in these visions, there are symbols everywhere. And I realize that we haggle over, well, how much is symbol? How much is literal? I lean more towards the symbolic. But I want you to think, he uses the word sea in two different ways. Literally, he uses it, and it, it means the sea, okay? But does the beast come out of a literal sea? Is the red dragon, who represents Satan, literally standing on a seashore, and as, as we watch the beast come out of the sea? In Daniel 7, where did the four beasts come from? It says they come out of the sea. Literally, did... Did Babylon come out of the sea? Did Persia, Medo-Persia, did it come out of the sea? What about Greece and Rome? Did they come out of the sea? See, they didn't. They came out of the abode of all that is evil. 
okay? Sometimes that was referred to as the deep, but regardless, the beast comes out of that sea. Two, that's in Revelation 13. Revelation 11, it says it differently. You know how it says it? It says the beast came out of the abyss. Now, I'm not going to get into the abyss and what that is. I'm going to suggest to you it's not a place like heaven and hell are. It is more of a spiritual dimension. Regardless, the beast comes out of the abyss. Talked about in Revelation 9. Locusts, hordes of locusts come out of it. They are a perfect picture of a demonic horde coming out and demonizing people. Just going to throw that one out there for you. But the, the sea represents this place of the abode of demons. It represents that which is evil. The beast comes out of it and receives the power and authority and the throne of Satan. He comes out of the sea. So I'm just going to suggest that this is not a literal sea that there aren't, isn't going to be any of. It is going to be all evil, all evil influence, all demonic influence will not be present there. The abyss will not be present there. Notice how in the very next verse he contrasts it with what? The holy city. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God to the earth. So let me just tell you that when you die, go to heaven, and at the end of the age when Jesus comes back and he recreates everything, church, we will not be sitting and laying around on clouds. We will not be in a celestial heaven. We will be on an earthly heaven as heaven comes to earth, a new earth. Now listen to some of these descriptions here. Give me a moment as I find my place. There will be no tears, nothing that brings sadness. I want you to just reflect, maybe even in the last week, and obviously some of you very much so, all of us perhaps, and experiencing sadness, the passing of a loved one, death. That marks us. That's hard. It's hard for us to cope with that. There's so much sadness in this world because of the brokenness in this world. Remove the brokenness. There is never, ever any sadness. There is only joy. God created Adam to experience joy. Joy unspeakable, Peter tells us. Wow, I want that joy all the time, regardless of my circumstances. I don't want to be a pawn in the hands of my circumstances. Emotionally, we can feel that way sometimes, can't we, church? But God says, no more sadness, no death, no pain. The old order of things gone completely. There's a new order here. What is that order? It's new heaven, new earth. Philippians 3.1 says, Jesus Christ will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. You will receive a resurrected body that will look, feel, act just like Jesus is transformed into, our bodies will be transformed to be like his glorious body. Not his earthly physical body before his resurrection, but afterwards. So, this is where we're heading, church. This idea of complete restoration. Verse 8, let me, let me just say this, and I, I kind of say it tongue-in-cheek. Forgive me, if I hope it doesn't offend you. But I have always wondered, if there's no death, to what degree will we have the liberty to do extreme sports? I'm just saying. I mean, you can't die. <laughs> Sounds pretty cool to me. Anyway, I, I don't know how far to take that, honestly, but there's no death. And in this new creation, there's going to be mountains. In this new creation, I don't know. But it, it's, it's going to be a total blast. I don't know if there's going to be extreme sports. Regardless, there will be no cowardly. That word, by the way, means fearful, like shrinking back in fear, afraid or timid. None of that. The fears that you have faced, the timidity that can kind of hold you back from doing a good thing, gone. Gone in your life. Gone from everybody. Gone from planet Earth and the universe. Gone. No, no vile, no murder, sexually immoral. No sin. No sinners whose sins have not been forgiven. 
And that's what he ends with right there <coughs> in verse 8. Now, I want you to follow me. I realize some of you may disagree with this because Revelation is so symbolic. I'm going to take this next passage in that vein. And, and I'm going to share with you why. So we're going to walk through some facts. We're going to walk through this description of a, of a new Jerusalem, of a holy city. And I need us to ask the question, is this a literal city that we are going to live in with literal streets paved with gold? Or is this symbolism? I take the latter. I want to share with you. But the thrust of it is why he would have so many certain specific numbers and this imagery. Why is he even using this? So, number one, if we could realize <clears throat> that he, the angel says right there in verse 9, Come, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then the very next verse, what does he show him? The holy city. I want you to imagine something. I'm telling you right now, and if I, I wanted to be able to, to, to put this up there, but I, finding all these types of pictures, that's my wife's forte and not mine. If I were to tell you guys, if you had never met my wife, I'm going to show you my bride, my wife. Are you ready for this? I put a picture up there, and if it's of the exterior of my house, my azaleas. The next picture is of my side tree. It's a live oak. <clears throat> and the flowers underneath it. And then I'm going to take you to the backyard. We just had a porch put on. I'm going to show you my porch. I'm going to take you inside. I'm going to show you the living room, and it's kind of connected to a dining room, and it's nice and large, and our kitchen is super bright yellow like the sun rising in the morning, okay? Tell you what, I don't need coffee. I love coffee, but I don't need coffee. When I flip that light on, bam, it's like I'm awake. I want to show you a picture of my kitchen. And then I'm going to show you a picture of my family room. And, and, and in that family room, it's just really homey, okay? It just feels like home. We don't have any expensive furniture. Well, we do have some antiques, but they're in the other room. And then I'm going to show you our homeschool room. And all of the books, oh my goodness, you'd walk in there. You might fear a little bit that if they ever fell off the shelf, they'd kill you. There's that many books. And I could show you the different bedrooms and the different colors. We have one we call the Pepto-Bismol room. Okay, yes, it's the pink room. Um, we have another room. It's probably changed colors half a dozen times because we have different ones of our, my, I have five kids and one, you know, different ones live, have lived in that room. Um, Juliana's room is, used to be white and purple. It is now gray and white. Yes, I remember correctly. My son's at the end of the room, be, uh, end of the hallway was a Go Eagles room okay if you didn't like the eagles you would never want to go into that room ever and, and i could show you pictures of this and you after the 18th picture you would say wait 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 mike dude what are you doing you told me you were going to show me pictures of your wife and all you have done 18 frames now is show me pictures of your house i'm a bit offended trust me my wife would be even more offended so here is my question. Why does the angel say, come, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he uses the same Greek word and he says, and he showed him 18 pictures of his house. 18 pictures of a city. And the last two, I say 18 because he shows him 20. The last two pictures, it's a picture of my wife coming through the front door it's a picture of the whole room there, and you can see she's kind of small in the picture in the background, and she's coming through the front door, and she's decked out. She just came back from a wedding, and she's beautiful, right? And then in one more picture, maybe she's sitting down with some of her friends at the table, and she's eating. And then that's it. And you're thinking, wow. I'm sorry, I really wanted, I was expecting and hoping to see your, your beautiful wife, Mike, and, and you just showed me your house. Do you understand where I'm going with this? There's another thing, that the gates have names on them. They are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, and then the 12 foundations have names, and they're the 12 apostles of the Lamb. There's some symbolism here. 12 tribes of Israel, Old Testament saints. 12 apostles of the Lamb, not like they're the only 
believers in Jesus, but they're the foundation. Remember the foundation of the apostles and prophets? They're the foundation of New Testament believers. We have the Old Testament and New Testament believers in this picture. Please don't tell me it's already 720. I'm just getting started, guys. Okay, all right. The city measures 12,000 stadia. It's cubed. That means that the city is 1,400 miles high. That is 280 times higher than Mount Everest, just so you know. I'm kind of wondering why God would create a city 1,400 miles high, 1,400 miles wide and long, unless it's not about 1,400 miles. It's about 12,000 stadia. How many angels are there? Are there 100 million angels? I mean, the Bible tells me 10,000 times 10,000. If you do the math, that's 100 million angels. Is that the point? No, he's just trying to say 10,000 is like a lot symbolically. And it's a lot times a lot. What he's telling us is 12,000 times 12,000, Old Testament, New Testament, innumerable believers, multiply it. Church, there's going to be a lot of people in heaven. Old Testament and New Testament followers of God who have been transformed. They've been restored by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of his testimony. They've been changed. And so I, I see in this so much symbolism. And then churches, bear with me next chapter. I want you to imagine this city, if, if it's literal, if it's literal, 12, 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles on planet Earth. And, you know, maybe Earth is just a lot bigger but you go through the gate, and what's on the outside of the gate? I want you to just mentally picture in your mind. You, you're on a renewed earth. You walk outside the gate, right? What do you see? I'm going to see rivers. I'm going to see trees and rolling hills. Man, mountains. I was born and raised in Delaware. At least Delaware has some hills. And if you go just a little bit further, you get to see mountains. Ah. No mountains here in central Florida. Mount Dora, by the way, is not a mountain. And I will argue that point. The truth, though, is when you step out the gate, you're going to see the beauty of God's creation. What do you find outside? Listen, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. May I just suggest there is never anyone coming out of the gates. And there's a reason for this. Verse 15, outside. Church, what's outside? It's God's new earth. But what does verse 15 say? Outside, outside are the dogs. Those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood, liars, that will not, what? Inherit the kingdom of God. What is outside the city. What is outside the kingdom of God, which two times in Revelation is equated with the people of God. It's the only place in scripture. Most of the time, the kingdom of God is separate from the subjects of the kingdom. Two places in Revelation, they're identified. Outside the kingdom is not just on this new earth. Outside this city means in hell. There is the sphere of God's new creation That is the new Jerusalem. That is the holy city. That is us. That is the people of God. Old Testament and New Testament innumerable. Outside the kingdom of God is the place where those who died in their sin are left. It's outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm sorry, but if this is a literal city, it's telling me that the new earth is populated with sinners just outside the gates. Unless it's symbolic. And I'm going to have to wait until next week to walk you through that symbolism because I'm, I'm out of time. But church, I'm sorry. I, I'm going to go over. I'm so sorry. But I need to read this to you. Okay, I'm going to skip that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this to you. We read Colossians 1. Powerful verse. I'm going to conclude with this. Colossians 1. I would encourage you, read this whole chapter, so powerful. 
Verse 20 says this, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself, to God, all things, all things are reconciled, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, Jesus' blood shed on the cross. Jesus, by his blood, is reconciling all things, not just people. All things, everything that has been touched by the curse. This word reconcile is a very unusual word in the Greek. The Greek, it has a, a, a preposition attached to the front, which generally in the Greek heightens the meaning, kind of lends this an emphasis to it. The original word is reconcile, but it's like hyper or super reconcile. The word reconcile means to restore in right relationship, to properly be aligned. All of creation will be properly aligned. All of creation will be brought to complete restoration to God. They choose the word reconcile because that's what reconcile means. It means to restore to someone who has been offended. Church, our sin has offended God. Our sin is not something light. In this vast, infinite holiness of God, my sin has offended his infinite holiness. I am deserving of infinite punishment. But what happened? In my brokenness, in, our, in mankind's brokenness, what did Jesus do? He stepped down at the right time. Born of a woman, born under the law. Galatians 4, remember? born at the right time to reconcile by his blood all things. I get the people. Yes, that's so important. And we're going to talk about this more later. But he's reconciled people, but he's reconciled things. Everywhere that sin has touched and brought the curse, all of that will be restored. All of that will be renewed on the new heaven and the new earth. And as you walk through this symbolism, we're going to do that next week, I guess, but it's powerful. It is like amazing. The beauty, the glory. Do you realize that the glory of God is in you? In this thing called the restored image of God? That it's, it's a process. He is revealing you. He's transforming you into the image. Into, into, he's trans, being transformed into the image of Christ from glory to glory. The glory of God's section is being revealed in you because Jesus is in you and he is, he is teaching you how to love. He's teaching you how to be filled with joy in hard circumstances, being faithful. And, and, and God looks at that and he says, man, that's glorious. See what I'm doing? Man, much more we could talk about that and we will. This image of God that's being restored. Jesus' blood. is what impacted it. Jesus' blood is what brings and catalyzes this super reconciliation, this super complete restoration. That's why I entitled this heaven, the complete restoration. That's what we're going to have, church. Right now, we are like Isaiah's ruined cities, and he talks about ruined city, cities being restored. That's a picture of me and you. We were ruined in great need of restoration. We're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, new creations in Christ. That which is in the past is done away with. And he's created something new in us. And it is this process of restoration. I'm not there yet. But there will be a day in which I will be completely restored in Christ. Because of the blood of the Lamb that impacted sin and washed it away. It will have reverberations throughout mankind, throughout history. Trajectory is on into eternity in this new creation, this new heaven, this new earth. Completely restored. And we're going to look at that. But church, I want you to think about something this week because I'm like way over time. I want you to think about what Jesus is doing in your life right now. The restoration begins now when you believe. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. But God, by his great mercy, 
made you alive in Christ. In Christ, you are made new. What is he restoring in you right now? When you look back, if you were to have pictures and if you could somehow see what you were really like before you came to Christ, and now looking at some of you, that's a horror show, sorry. But you look at those pictures and you look at yourself today. What has Christ done in you? That is the hope of glory in you. The Spirit of God renewing. He's, he's not done with you yet. He didn't just start something in the, when you first believed and said, See you later, Mike. Hope you make it. See you in heaven. I'm looking forward to it. Good luck. Praying for you. By the way, Jesus does pray for us. But the truth is, he doesn't leave us there. He works in us every day in this restoration process. We are restored in part in this age, but restored fully in the age to come. I'm going to close in prayer right now. I want you to consider this, what Jesus is doing right now. Maybe five years ago when you hit tragedy, you would have fallen apart. But today you're not. Why is that? Because of this hope, this passion to pursue Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Your focus isn't on the simple things of this life and, and all that it has, as good as they are, but it is looking ahead and all that he has for you there. Yes, he has good things for you now. Learn to walk in them. Learn to do, embrace that restoration. So, Father, we do that right now. If there is any resistance in our hearts to what you're trying to do in restoring and renewing our minds, in restoring and renewing our habits so that the old man truly is crucified and the new man is truly being found in Christ alone. Lord, I just pray, bring about this restoration in every single one of us. Don't give up on us. Thank you, Lord. I know you won't. But Lord, I just pray for everyone here who's struggling, who just feels as if they can't make it. Feels as if they might as well just throw in the towel. Life is just too hard. They've been knocked down like Rocky in the 15th round too many times. And I just pray for them, God, today, restore hope. Restore their mind. Restore their heart. Give them that joy once again that they'd experience. Give them that hope. Give them that passion, that love that once burned so brightly. Restore these things, God. And I just ask you, Father, tonight, as we humble ourselves before us, your word says that if we're thirsty, and tonight, Lord, some of us are thirsty, and we just come before you as we drink from this life that we would walk in this inheritance that you've given us in part now to walk in it more fully. Would you do that, Father? every single one of us as we cry out to you. Thank you, God, that you're so good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, stay tuned for part two next week.